0: Now then, we've got something special. We're bringing out the darlings. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, when Snap producers come up with their stories, they often have some piece of darling interview tape that's great, but for whatever reason doesn't quite fit with the story. And because I'm evil, I tell them, cut it. But whenever I demand the producers cut their precious little moments, they cry, they wretch, they shake their fist at me and yell, How can, can you possibly, possibly cut this? With scissors. That's how. So, this next segment is a chance for them to bring back those golden moments that we've left behind. Snap Judgment.
1: All right, Pat, let me know what you got. Okay, so what I got is some tape that got cut from the Wells Fargo Zim Heavy story, which is the rock band from Zimbabwe. Now, the tape comes from the bass player, Never. Uh Uh-huh. And when the band first got started, Never Still Had a Day Job, at a repair shop for foosball tables. He calls them mini soccer tables. Gotcha. So the day that they finally get their first gig, Mm -hmm. the leader of the band gives them an ultimatum and says, either you're with the mini soccer tables or you're with us. I remember this, yes. So he's at work, boss is sweating him, and he's trying to make the decision of whether or not he stays and makes his money to support himself or pursues his dream. You know what I did?
0: <laughs> I started unscrewing every rubber man on that mini soccer table. You know, when you pull one rod, everything falls. I pull them out and I heaped the rods. I said, guys, thank you. You have a wonderful time. I'm off. I'm leaving. You can't leave this. we we'll open. The shop. I said no. Phone the boss. Tell him this is what I've done. I'm off. I'm gone. And then I left. I, I left the shop. I went across. I bought myself a packet of chips, and then I was walking. I never looked back. That's gangster, Pat. You That's how it goes like, right there. You just there. take the whole <laughs> thing apart. <laughs> See, ya, I'm gonna buy me some chips now. Peace out.
1: <laughs> so that part of the story didn't make it in because it was like we were running out of time, and everybody wanted to get to the band playing a little quicker, but I totally love this story. And I think it's just crazy what, what, what those guys went through. And I mean, they're just heroes of mine for sure.
2: So Eliza, what do you got for me?
3: So Joe, I am playing a portion from an interview <laughs> that I did with Charles Monroe Kane <laughs> for the story Faith Healer <laughs> <laughs> earlier this year.
2: Does this tangent require its own exposition?
3: Um, when you boil it down, the story's about mental health.
1: My wife has this thing, and she knew me before I was on meds and after. We've been together almost 20 years, so. And she is like, dude, not taking your medication is selfish. That's a selfish, childish thing to do. And I think she's right. She's like, I'm like, oh, I miss the old me. She goes, no, the old you was selfish. The old you was it was arrogant and self-centered. And y- y- you, you don't see it, but the new you, the one on the medication, is more compassionate.
2: Wow. Did this resonate with you? Yeah. Specifically for a specific reason? What what was that reason?
3: Well, I have anxiety and I medicated for it. And I am totally one of those people who when I was diagnosed, I was like, there's no way I'm going on medication. And then I went on it and there's so much stigma around it. And I guess for me, I just don't understand why, because all it does is it takes the edge off and it makes you more functional. Like, yeah. all it does, it allows me to, like, sleep and have conversations with people. Yeah. And that's really <laughs> it. It's like, why is there stigma around that? I don't get it.
2: Yeah. So why was this cut?
3: Um. Well, I guess it was cut because um, the story, the focus of the story was his journey as a faith healer. And so we weren't really going, we weren't taking the deepest dive into his um history with schizophrenia. Yeah. So the schizophrenia was more of a coda to the
2: story. It was like the
3: denouement, as we say sometimes here at Snap Judgment, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Denouement, coda, pick your poison. At the, <laughs> I, I remember it, though, because at the end, he's like, looking back on it, like, let's face it, I was a little nuts. And it just kind of, it's like, let's just leave it at that. Totally.
4: So, Joe, what do you have to play for me?
2: Okay, so, Liz, today I have for you a clip from a story from maybe about nine months ago it's called the writing is on the wall and the talker for the story was uh, a lawyer from a small southern town in georgia who had like the best name of any person we've ever brought on the show ever his name was mccracken poston <laughs> anyways mccracken poston is a former state legislature who lost in this like really humiliating election and just had to go back to his law practice so almost out of spite he decided that he was going to represent um the most hated man in town. It was this guy named Alvin Ridley who was like a hermit who lived in this like old boarded up house that no one was ever in. And Alvin Ridley had been charged with effectively locking his wife up and killing her. But basically over the course of the trial, all this amazing evidence comes to light and it turns out that he's he's innocent. And uh, so this is a clip from right after the trial, after he's acquitted and McCracken's talking to Alvin.
5: So I said, Alvin you know, we won. I want to take you to dinner. I want you to think of the finest restaurant in Chattanooga, and I'll take you there right now. And he said, what about (laughs) Hardee's? Well, that's a fast food chain in the South and elsewhere. And I said, well, if that's where you want to go, I'll take you. But on the way to Hardee's, I'm talking to him. I'm trying to build him up and let him grow from this moment. And I said, Alvin, you know, you've got to understand You thought everybody was against you, but 12 people just said they believed you and they actually liked you, I believe. And you have to understand that. And I want you to not be thinking that everybody's against you. I said, I want you to start trying to speak to people. So we walk into Hardy's. There's a line. We're standing in line. A lady turns around and looks at us. And Alvin says, hey, I'm that feller they said killed his wife. But the jury said I didn't kill her. And he just stands there staring at her and she left the restaurant. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, there's a start.
2: That's it.
4: Oh, he's totally innocent. He's just really
2: weird. Yeah. No, he's like, his problem is he's too innocent, perhaps. Yeah. Too innocent for this world.
4: Yeah. Oh, So why do you have to cut it?
2: I had to cut it because this guy, McCracken Poston, I mean, you can tell he's just a born storyteller and so ultimately we had like just this abundance of ways to end the story and um we decided on another one we didn't want to choose this one because ultimately we just spent the entire story acquitting alvin and showing that he's you know a real human being and um and so we didn't want to we didn't want to end on a note where we're making fun of him we thought we'd um we'd we'd give him a proper send-off So you just had to sacrifice
4: this piece along with all the other pieces you left on your cutting room floor. Yeah, along with the 50 other pieces that
2: are radio-worthy that uh, you'll never hear.
4: That's a gruesome scene.
3: (laughs) All right, Liz, tell me what you have. Okay,
4: well, I went to, as you know, I went to Standing Rock, you know, in the end of November I realized even more fully when I was there how when you are on the front lines, it really is like you're in a war zone, which I've never been to. Um, So this is one young man that I met. His name is Tomas Lopez. He's 24. I actually interviewed Tomas Lopez um, at camp in a yurt. So, you know, you can actually hear the outside a little bit in this piece of tape, um, including a helicopter that flies overhead.
2: We stood behind the line that they said we needed to stand behind. We did everything that they told us to do. And when we went to end our prayer, one of the police officers looked at me, targeted me, said, Arrest him. He grabbed me very aggressively. And they threw me to the ground. And they wanted me to react. They wanted me to be violent like them. And I ref- I refused. I didn't fight them. I didn't talk back to them. I didn't wish bad on them. I sat in that cell and I prayed. I showed them. I'm not your enemy, sister. I'm not your enemy, brother.
4: Hmm. It's
3: pretty powerful. What do you think is so powerful about it? I think the moment that he said that he didn't wish anything bad on them, I, I couldn't help but think that if I were in that situation, that I wouldn't just be angry and upset, especially in light of everything that's been going on in this country with authority, you know, abusing their power on someone that has very little to defend themselves with. Yeah. What's crazy is I
4: remember that when I was on the front lines, there was a police standoff for six hours that I asked a lot of people, well, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice for this fight? And a lot of people said my life. And I feel like I've heard that a lot before, but I've never really seen someone mean it There was this moment where someone said, hey, like, you know, you're the media. We really need you to get this story out. Stand behind me. I'll take a bullet for you. And the police had their guns pointed at us. Hmm. And I've just never experienced that kind of real willingness to give yourself for a cause.
0: Thank you, Pat Messini-Miller eliza smith joe rosenberg liz matt for sharing your darlings and davy kim for producing this segment